Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine. You're listening to a new episode of Stories from Space Podcast, where your host, Matthew Williams, examines the history of human spaceflight, the breakthroughs that revolutionized our understanding of the universe and our place in it, and the brave individuals who work tirelessly to advance the frontiers of our understanding. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. The authors acknowledge that this podcast was recorded on the traditional unceded lands of the Lekwungen peoples. Hello, and welcome back to Stories from Space. I'm your host, Matt Williams. Today, I wanted to depart from our usual programming to talk to you a bit more about one of the most profound and influential visions of space and space exploration that has ever, ever been made, and I'm referring to 2001 A Space Odyssey. The vision that Arthur C. Clarke and Stanley Kubrick came together to create in the form of a film, and which Arthur C. Clarke further detailed in novel form. Both were released in 1968 and have had a very lasting influence. In particular, the film is considered the greatest science fiction movie of all time, or at the very least, within the top three. I've consulted several lists as determined by popular votes and opinion polls, and yes, 2001 is consistently at the top, and for very good reason. On the one hand, it presented some, what were considered even at the time of the making, just very time-honored concepts of how human beings could extend their reach into space and beyond Earth, beyond the moon, to the very edge of the solar system. And these are concepts that had been talked about extensively by the forefathers of rocketry, in particular, Konstantin Tsiolkovsky, which had been elaborated by a number of NASA scientists and NASA studies during the space age, which was right on the verge of peaking there when the movie and book were released in 1968. The moon landing would happen uh, just about a year later. And also, the vision that... Kubrick and Clark, with the help of Carl Sagan, which is a detail that is less commonly known about 2001, a vision of extraterrestrial intelligence and possibly humanity's own future, what we would eventually evolve into. They presented a picture of it that was immensely inspired and also very timeless and Put together, all of this added up to a brilliantly hard piece of science fiction. It was grounded in reality, grounded in a lot of theory and, yes, speculation, but which was based in known science or what we knew could be achievable, and just a, a sufficient amount of imagination and whimsy there about what is truly possible what could be truly possible, given enough time for species development. So yeah, years later, I, I still love the film. I've read Arthur C. Clarke's novelization of it a, a few times. And one thing I, I loved about the two in combination was that Stanley Kubrick is uh, an individual who's known for his very show-don't-tell style of filmmaking. He never likes to reveal things outright. He's more of a going to present it through visuals, going to suggest it. Arthur C. Clarke takes a more direct approach in his writing. He is very much the committed scientist and futurist, so he 
when he's sharing his vision, he spells it out and it's, they're really quite brilliant. And it helped for me anyway, it helped confirm what the film was trying to say. I came away from it thinking that, Oh, I think this is what, you know, those uh, final scenes meant. Clark explains it in, uh, in greater detail. And there are some notable differences between the book and the film, even though they were released concurrently and Clark himself had a hand in both. Normally how this works out is the author writes the novel, the studio director, filmmaker, they do the adaptation and there's changes between the book and the movie. Whereas in this case it was, yeah, these two things are released simultaneously and one slightly different from the other, but the book and film are still on the same page where it counts. So originally Stanley Kubrick, according to his statements he made in what he'd later said in interviews and according to his biographer, John Baxter, it was after Stanley had created Dr. Strangelove and which was released in 1964 that he decided I want to do something about extraterrestrial life and space and decided uh, that he wanted to make the proverbial good science fiction movie. And he was very much inspired by documentaries that showed the potential for space exploration. That included a short documentary called Universe, which was produced by the National Film Board of Canada, and a movie that played at the 1964 New York World's Fair called the, To the Moon and Beyond. And what he specifically wanted to do was to avoid any of the fanciful and commercial science fiction depictions. He wanted to do something that was serious and realistic. And ultimately, he got in touch through mutual acquaintances with Arthur C. Clarke, who was already known for his brilliant and insightful depictions of the future. And a great deal of work went into adapting ideas, NASA designs, their more speculative work, which included designs for space planes and space stations and colonies on the moon. All of these ideas that, that benefited from the early space age and the fact that just everything was sort of on the table at the time. So he, he went to work getting his set designers and his conceptual artists to start working with that, to try and create that. And... Clark and Kubrick, eventually, they agreed that the film was actually going to be adapted from two of Clark's short stories. And that included The the Sentinel, a short story he wrote years prior about humans finding a extraterrestrial object on the moon, and Encounter at Dawn, which talked about aliens coming to Earth and meeting what, what turned out to be primitive humans who met them and believed them to be gods, and is revealed at the end, they are the early ancestors of the Sumerians and Babylonians. So, yeah, sort of an ancient aliens uh, um, take there. And so these ended up becoming the basis for parts one and two of, of the movie. Right? The uh, Encounter at Dawn was the basis of the early section of the film, which is all about the early hominids, the, the chimps meeting the monolith and learning how to hunt and essentially becoming masters of their environment because yes as they showed it's at the time uh, they weren't doing so well and they were facing extinction starvation and part two of the film which takes place in 1999 that's based on the sentinel and the plot there revolves around how the on the american sector on the moon they find a a monolith just identical to the one that visited early hominids and 
Part three was an original creation there. They decided now we need a segment of the film where the astronauts go to the outer solar system to find out. And I should have said spoiler alert here. Yes, major spoilers here. Yeah, the monolith on the moon, they realize as soon as light hits it after it's unearthed, it sends a big, huge burst of electromagnetic radiation towards Jupiter. And a mission is mounted, and they decide we need to go investigate the recipient of this signal, because clearly that was meant as some form of communication. And of course, the film then unfolds, and part three is really where the emphasis is. There's four parts to the movie overall, and part three is where the spaceship Discovery is flying out to Jupiter and to rendezvous with something entirely unknown. The HAL 9000 computer goes nuts and kills the crew. And part four, then, is where astronaut Frank Bowman sees the monolith hovering between Jupiter's largest moons near to Europa. And his encounter then creates this mind-bending sequence, which people who went to the movies there and saw it in 1968 uh, were left a little bit confused by. It was incredibly rich in imagery, very sort of esoteric, and the ending left a lot of people mystified. The novel explained things a little bit better. But I definitely felt, when I saw the movie, which was for the second time when I was a teenager, the first time I saw it was a child, and my parents brought it home to watch on VHS. I remember us seeing the sequel in the theater, and I, I was quite creeped out by a lot of the imagery and, you know, the baby scene there. Um, that all seemed really weird to me. But after seeing it for the second time, I felt like I, I had some understanding there, thanks to a lot of classic science fiction that I was being exposed to, which in turn was largely inspired by Clark and Kubrick and, and their writing. So that final scene, or the penultimate scene there, where Bowman has been captured by the monolith, and he's he proclaims, oh my, my god, it's full of stars, and these are his last words, and then he's witnessing some kind of cosmic phenomenon there. It looks like he's flying through uh, space and time at speeds unimaginable, and he's being treated to a dazzling light show, and then there's all this just really crazily colored imagery there, surface of a planet, and what looks like stuff going on in space, but it also looks like biology, placentas, and uh, spermatozoa, and, and all this, it, it, it's funny in a way, because this spoke directly to me, and I thought, oh yeah, he's, he's witnessing the cosmos itself. He's being zipped through space and time, and seeing what the monolith has seen, what its creators have seen, he's seeing how life emerged, and how, yeah, it uh, then take, takes root on the surface of a planet, and then it all culminates with him seeing himself in a room, as himself as he is, as an old man, as a dying man, as a baby, and at the end of it all, he sees the monolith at the foot of his bed, like it's looming over him and declaring that this is it. I'm the one showing you all this. You're now part of me, and then he is placental. He's basically a baby in a womb staring down at Earth. And this speaks to the imagery used throughout there. All throughout the film, we see things that are richly symbolic. We see 
things arranged in threes. So at the beginning of the film, you have the moon, earth, and the sun behind it. In part one, where the apes see the monolith, they're looking up at it. They see the monolith, the sun, and the moon in the sky. When the astronauts are reaching Jupiter and Frank Bowman goes out into the pod, we see Jupiter, its moons, and the sun in the distance forming up in a three, and the monolith above that. And as as it was explained to me, people who with far greater insight than, than myself, they said that, yeah, this, this is a deliberate allusion to the arrangement of threes. This is something that portends change in the ancient traditions, in uh, astrology and cosmology. The idea of threes, it indicates that something big is about to happen. And the score to the movie, so much classical music was in there, and that was absolutely perfect for doing the the space scenes. But the, the main song, which people would recognize from the intro here, it is Alzo Sprach Zarathustra, or Thus Spoke Zarathustra, and that's named after, it's by Strauss, and it takes its name from Friedrich Nietzsche's most well-known work, which is of the same name, Thus Spoke Zarathustra. And the book contains Nietzsche's basic thoughts on philosophy and, and humanity and human evolution, more in the historic sense than in the uh, biological sense. And it is very much concerned with metamorphosis. And Nietzsche talked about this, how humanity is going through three stages, basically going from beast to man to superman. And that uh, really reflected his ideas on how, in the modern age, shedding old superstitions, shedding religion, God is dead, and so forth, created the opportunity to become this next phase in evolution, to become the Uberman, which was never intended as a racial concept, just for the record. Uh, Nazis love to see it that way, but they were bald-faced liars whom Nietzsche would have hated had he ever met them. He despised nationalists and racialists. But yeah, the song was deliberately chosen for that because it was presenting a series of metamorphoses. When the, the chimps saw the monolith and suddenly learned to hunt, it, it not only allowed them to survive, it gave them mastery of their environment, and it was essential to the evolution of humanity as a modern species. That's, that's the point that, that they were making there, Clark and uh, Kubrick. And the next major metamorphosis is when... Bowman meets this alien intelligence so far advanced beyond anything we've ever encountered, unfathomably advanced. Yeah, it's as if the ship itself, it has no physical bodies aboard it. There are no discernible aliens. There's just this, these things, which are either their, their transport vessels or their, their sentries, their sentinels. And this was deliberately chosen as well so that we would not know. Are we looking at a like a robotic intelligence there? Are we looking at the alien intelligence itself contained in this this body? Is it both? And when Frank Bowman encounters it, he undergoes a tremendous physical and existential change. He becomes the star child. So to to touch on that a bit, yeah, apparently Kubrick decided that this was what he wanted to do with the design for the monolith after a lot of gut-wrenching, soul-searching, and because he wanted a scene where we get to see the aliens. He had decided on that while they were while they were writing and producing it. And so he 
toyed around with different designs for what they would look like. But in the end, he was always frustrated because he thought, no matter what I have here, it still looks way too human. And he realized something that every cosmologist or every person who's engaged in the the search for extraterrestrial intelligence and speculation about it, it's like the only frame of reference we have is ourselves. So we can't possibly imagine what such an intelligence would look like. And as a favor, Carl Sagan was called in to advise him on this. And that's exactly what he said. He said, if we ever meet aliens, they will be so different, so outside of our comprehension that frankly, we wouldn't even know what they're, what they really were. We wouldn't understand if what we're seeing was the aliens themselves or their robots or something else entirely. We would just be subject to, to guessing and there would be no, no means of finding that out upon first contact. And so that, that's what ultimately inspired Kubrick and with Clark's help, of course, to come up with the idea for the monolith. And it's, it's like, it's a very simple design. It's a big, huge black slab and it's pitch black, which just lends a, incredible sense of mystery to it. And the fact that throughout the film, you know, one is just standing there or one is floating there. It just inspires all kinds of awe and fear and creepiness and uh, (laughs) excitement there because it's like, what the heck are we even looking at here? You know, is it trying to communicate with us? Why is it moving? Why, Why is it standing there just looking at us like that? And yeah. And, and of course, it's demonstrated too. It's like the apes first see it, they're frightened by it and they start freaking out, but gradually they start to calm down as they realize it's, it's not posing any real threat. When humans look at it, they feel that same instinct. We are frightened and in awe of it. When Frank Bowman sees it and when the audience sees it near the end, same thing. We're just absolutely in awe of it because it's so simple yet so unknowable. And Arthur C. Clarke, he fleshed it out in the book, and he said that, yes, the monolith that, that Frank Bowman encounters, the term Stargate would suffice. It is a device left behind by this super-advanced race. Their consciousness is not inside it, so it is a, like a robotic emissary, but it, it wasn't meant to, to act as a emissary. Its purpose was to basically wait in the outer solar system and relay communications from the monolith that's on the moon, which like the monoliths on earth, they were there to observe. These were their old vessels, the aliens, and they've since transcended the need for any kind of physical vessel at all. Nevertheless, though, it it has a, a mind, it has a purpose. And when Frank Bowman approached it, he essentially was sucked into the Stargate. He was transported around the universe and then he underwent a transcension basically shed his physical body and became one with it. Not by choice, but that's just how it, how it worked out. And Clark explains that process too. After, after Bowman is inside, he comes to realize that I've changed now. I'm, I'm beyond anything I ever was before. And I feel both the excitement and trepidation of confronting, of, of undergoing a metamorphosis and confronting an uncertain future don't know what to expect, but as, as Clark says throughout the book, he knew he'd think of something. 
That's how the chimp felt after he used the bone to club down another primate and defend himself from a tiger or a mountain lion. And what Bowman felt, too, when he realizes this new power that he has. So, the genius of all that, right? It's like, if you make a point to learn about this stuff and seek what others have sought there and and read about what these uh, big influential minds who have written about this and made their life's work about it, just talking about what the future could hold for us, for our chances of meeting intelligent life, how our future could very well lie in space and how, you know, if there is other intelligent life out there, how we're all intimately connected and the prospect inspires awe and fear in the same measure at the same time. It's like these guys, they, they get it. And they were some of the first to do this. Clark and Kubrick, their work, it came along at a time when interest in this was at an all time high, but representations, serious representations of science and space and technology and extraterrestrial life were really, really lacking. And one had to look and what they used, what they adapted the film from, right? All the designs and the, the thought experiments and the search for extraterrestrial intelligence itself, which had really kicked off only uh, less than a decade prior. All of that information that they used to inspire the film was really prior to the film was only it was something restricted to these circles. So to know about pinwheel stations in space, which Tsiolkovsky had envisioned, to know about space planes, reusable space planes, and to know about just the potential for what an encounter with an extraterrestrial intelligence would be like. You either had to be an aeronautical engineer, most likely working at NASA, or you had to be Dr. Frank Drake or someone working in Project Ozma and, and the other early SETI experiments. So, 2001, the film, and Arthur C. Clarke's seminal novel, they popularized these things. And so you see these, these concepts explored extensively in other franchises, other films. Some notable examples would include Arrivals. It's my wife's favorite movie. Also, Interstellar, I would say, counts. Ad Astra did a, a pretty good job as well. Films like that, they were all very, very good. Don't get me wrong here. But at the same time, they were basically taking crumbs off the table of 2001. And if you haven't seen this movie yet, yeah, I can't uh, recommend it enough. And the book, too, I can't recommend that enough. And all the other titles I mentioned, I, I highly recommend them. And I I will say this, this film and Clark's novel and many other things that Clark himself has, uh, has written over the years, and all the studies that they reference, Tsiolkovsky's work and <laughs> the early work on NASA and the Soviet space program, all this stuff inspired me to write. I wanted to, upon seeing this, I thought, I want to write science fiction myself someday that's like that. So it took me a while to articulate that, but now that I've actually had the chance to do that, of course, I'm looking back and thinking, just, it's amazing, right? How people who you've never met, who came and went years before you were even an adult or a fully formed individual, how you could feel so connected with them and how their work, their ideas, their insight would predict so much that, that would come. 
And it speaks to something I talked about in a previous podcast about science fiction writers and how they influence the future. Did history unfold in such a way as to say, yeah, they were, they were brilliant, they were, they were accurate, or did it unfold in such a way because they predicted it? Yeah, this is definitely one of those cases where that's, <laughs> you have to wonder. And while I touched on many of those same things about this film and, and Arthur C. Clarke's own uh, work there in that episode, I absolutely felt that the book and the film just on their own merited a full episode for themselves because they were that influential, they were that good, and they are that important to, to me, certainly. So I hope you enjoyed hearing about them. And I hope you'll join me again very soon. I plan to tackle the other authors I've mentioned, individuals like William Gibson, Neil Stevenson, Kim Stanley Robinson, and others who also predicted a future that certainly did involve spaceflight and also humanity's future in space. In full or in part, their books did uh, touch on that, so I too want to touch on it very much. So thank you for listening and hope you'll join me again soon. I'm Matt Williams, and this has been Stories from Space. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Stories from Space podcast with Matthew Williams. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share ITSPMagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Thank you.